children were growing up, they had the awesome privilege of having a grandma who lived 100 kilometers away, just perfect grandma distance, you know what I mean? And uh, in, in this idyllic grandma setting, on the edge of a small town in a little grandma house right on the river. The river and the swamp across the river was teeming with wildlife, and they loved to spend the weekend at grandma's house, like they did one summer, uh, or one weekend uh, in the summer between our son's grade three and grade four years. On Saturday morning, he got up as soon as he heard grandma up early. He never did that at home. But uh, together, they sat at the big bay window in the dining room, looking at the river, eating their breakfast. The game was to see how many different wild birds and animals they could see and who could see them first, and then report back to mom and dad. There were geese, there were ducks, there were beaver. There was a lodge in the swampy area across the river. The occasional fox, they once even saw a bear in there. And every once in a while, they'd see an eagle. But on this particular day, their primary focus was the osprey nest across the river in a big, tall, dead tree. In that nest were several babies, and Grandma had seen the mother feeding the babies, and she was hoping that she would be able to introduce her grandson to that view. And suddenly, the osprey, who was circling above, took a dive all the way down to the river, and it looked like he hit the water at full force and started pumping his wings furiously. And Grandma said, let's watch him. I think he's got a fish. But he pumped, and he pumped, and he did not move. And then slowly, slowly, very slowly, she started emerging out of the water. The fish in her talons was coming with her. And then, after what seemed like forever, the rest of the story began to emerge as well. Out of the water, at the other end of the fish, was... What was it? It wasn't until he was fully out of the water that they saw that hanging on to the other end of the fish was a river otter. As they told the story later, they really didn't know how long the battle went on. It seemed like forever. A mighty bird of prey and a hungry semi-aquatic mammal with an innocent fish just minding its own business caught in the middle. And this was our son's grade four picture of his most memorable summer experience. Ever feel like that fish caught in the middle? It's frustrating. Sometimes it's an exhilarating frustrating with drama, 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 like two teenage boys fighting over one hot girl, or maybe the other way around, although I never experienced the other way around. <laughs> most, often, most often it's just discouraging and depressing kind of frustrating, like caught between mom and dad caught between siblings and mom and dad, caught with you and your partner and differing expectations or views of your future. Sometimes it's like, when am I not caught in the middle? Why do I always get caught in the middle? Good question. And that is the question we'll be exploring one perspective on today from the book of Joshua. Why do I always get caught in the middle? Oh, yeah, the osprey, the fish, and the otter. Who do you think won the battle of the middle? The osprey, the fish, or the otter? How, how many say the osprey won it? Yeah, we got one back there. A couple. How many, think, how many think the otter won the battle? 
Okay, yeah, yeah. How many think fish won the battle? The otter and the osprey both gave up. <laughs> Couple? Osprey won. It did. It did. Now, pilots, of course, will say air war takes it every time. So, yeah, of course, yeah. The book of Joshua, chapter 2, is a book about someone caught in the middle of a holy war. Joshua 2. Turn here in your Bibles. And if you've, got a, if you've got a smartphone, download a Bible app really quickly, the one on the screen there, and Joshua chapter 2, the sixth book in the Bible in the Older Testament, caught in the middle of a holy war. Two weeks ago, we left God's people gathered on the wilderness side of the Jordan River, 40 years after they had stood at this place for the first time and turned back from crossing it and taking the land God had promised Abraham, their founding father, 750 years earlier. 40 years after God had led them out of slavery in Egypt, having wandered in the desert for most of that time until an entire generation passes on because they chickened out when they stood at this very place. Moses, their longtime leader, has gone too. It's now Joshua who stands before these people and as Dave introduced us uh, to, to a couple of weeks ago, gives them this inspiring pump them up pregame speech which, which we saw and heard three things the quarterback is saying at the edge of the field before they got in the game. Number one, put God's word first. Be careful to obey this law fully and completely. God's word to you before the world around you. Remember that. Number two, see God's presence most. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And number three, remember God will win. The Lord, your God, will give you this land. That's what God tells Joshua. That's what Joshua tells the people. And as the chapter closes in chapter 1, if you want to look back there, we didn't look over this part, but the people respond back to Joshua. We accept your challenge, Joshua. Whatever you tell us, we will do. Wherever you lead us, we will go. We will deal with anyone who doesn't follow you. Now back at you, Joshua. You be strong and courageous. If we close our eyes and visualize the scene in our minds, we can almost hear it, can't we? Charge! Charge! Come on, you guys. One more. Charge! All right, yes. If we had consulted, a, if Joshua had consulted a personal leadership coach, by the way, that's how we expect chapter 2 to begin. We're set up for that. And if, if Joshua had consulted a personal leadership coach or had brought in a strategic direction consultant, here's what he would have heard. The consultant would have said to him, Joshua, they're united. Do you know how unique that is? They're pumped and inspired. Do you know how amazing that is? They've given you the green light. The momentum is there. Capture it. Move. Don't blow this moment. It won't last long. But Joshua hesitates. He stumbles. Or does he? As we come to chapter 2, there's this scene. I'm going to ask somebody to go get my Bible right at that chair and bring it to me if you don't mind. He comes to chapter 2. There's this scene that seems to be totally out of place in the... Hey, thank you so much in the flow of the story. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then, 
With the people pumped and ready to go, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly, doesn't want anybody to know that he's doing this, sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land. And by the way, focus on Jericho. Really, Joshua? Moses did this 38 years ago. You were one of the ones he sent in. You and Caleb were optimistic. We can do it. Well, well God can do it. But the other 10 said, no way. The people are too big. There are so many ways this can go south, Joshua. Are you really wanting to do this? The coach would have said to him, Joshua, this is your call. I know that. But I need to ask you, why? Why are you doing this? Are you remembering what happened last time? You have all the information you need. Nothing's changed in 38 years. Is this perhaps just a stall technique on your part? Have you thought about why? You're doing this. We're not told why Joshua's doing this. But we do know he's thought it through enough to do it a little differently this time. This time, he does it secretly. Only Joshua knows. He knows that if the people know, it will just lead to all kinds of second guessing and conversations behind his back. This time, he only sends two, not 12. Two. More than one perspective. They can discuss their individual observations and fine-tune each other's perspective and come back with a united report, not have to vote. Two, the number of people who last time gave a positive report. Two, selected personally by him, not elected as representatives elected by the people like last time who would report back to all the people. Two guys personally and carefully chosen by Joshua himself, who are going to report back to Joshua. So why does he send the spies? We're not told why. And we're not told what Joshua wants them to look for. We do know at least three things. Number one, we know this is not a should we or shouldn't we do this, because back in chapter 1, we saw that that's already been decided. Chapter 1, verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. And from that, we also know two more things. There is three days that they have to do this. And number three. We know that their focus is supposed to be on Jericho, which makes sense. Jericho is sort of the gateway city into the land. Let's focus on one city at a time. Seems to be the message. One battle at a time. Let's get one win under our belt. But as we read the chapter carefully, it's pretty clear there's a whole lot more going on. We don't know what they're to look for in Jericho. Which leads us to the question, does Joshua even know exactly why he's sending them? Or did he tell his consultant, when his consultant said why, did he say, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I just sense. Maybe he sensed a nudge from God. That even though from a moment, that, that this was a risky decision, but it's something that just has to be done. As we read the chapter carefully, it's pretty clear there's a whole lot more going on. It's a game within a game, as they say, that makes one, one answer to that why question pretty clear. We're going to read Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over the land, he said, 
especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, well, yeah, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. You better go after them quickly because you might be able to catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. And so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear because, and, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. I've sent them in an opposite direction. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go your way. Now the men had, sent, had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house... If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left... They went into the hills and stayed there for three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now this chapter, this event like much of Hebrew narrative, is, uh, is well-crafted. And once again, as David showed us uh, several weeks ago, from chapter 1, it's structured in what's called a chiasm, a, a, an X. Or, well, today let's think of it as a sandwich. The outside of the sandwich, the bun, verse 1, spies sent by Joshua, and then verses 22 and by 24, spies return to Joshua. 
That's what we think of as the game. But in the sandwich, the game within the game, there are also several, uh, two, two sort of outside perspectives, outside of the, 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 the meat of the sandwich. In um, the, the, the top piece, right next to the top slice of the bun, is the lettuce, tomatoes, onions. The flavor, the drama of the story. Verse 1, so they went and entered the house of a prostitute in Abraham. They didn't just enter and leave, they stayed there. Okay, now that adds some flavor to the sandwich. Maybe that's the onion, I don't know. Rahab, perhaps not as a result of her own choices, was a professionally immoral person. But hers was not a life at the bottom. A life of desperation. Most likely, given the location of her place of residence, right in a prominent place on the wall of the city, close to the city gate, she probably ran an inn for travelers. It's the place most men stayed when they came to or, or went through this gateway city, which is probably why the spies are here. It's actually a logical place for them to hide in the open. Ordinary strangers in a public way station. And like many such inns, Rahab offered more than just a bed and a meal, which is not why the spies are here. There's no hint that the spies got caught following their lusts and passions. But when you think about it, especially given the fact that there's a high likelihood that men from the town and perhaps even the king or the king's men have taken advantage of her services, this might actually be the best place for the spies to get information. But although the spy's mission is secret with God's people, Jericho's intel has picked up on it immediately, and the spies are busted. Okay, tension's building in the story, right? The drama's there. Their cover's blown. They're at the mercy of a prostitute. What will this woman, a woman who is loyal to no man, but who also knows how to keep the secrets of men, to cover for them, what will she do now? To whom will she be loyal this time? These strangers who are passing through? Or to her own people? The ones to whom she has probably passed on the secrets of many strangers. Surely she knows which side her bread is buttered on. But before these spies had come, Rahab had already made her choice. I believe that these spies are here because Rahab has been praying for some time for a way out. And before the messengers of the king come, Rahab has made a decision that she knows will put her own life on the line. Two highly risky moves that protect these strangers. Number one, she hides them. And then number two, she lies to the king's men and sends them on a wild goose chase, which allows the spies to escape. She hides them under stacks of flax on her roof, which tells us she is no ordinary woman. Flax, flax was growing wild in some places in Canaan, but it was not a common plant. In Canaan. It was mostly imported from Egypt. What was found wild took a lot of effort to harvest and was laborious to process, 
Flax was used to make cloth, linen actually, which tells us that Rahab is probably a fairly industrious woman and a successful businesswoman. But for now, that flax is repurposed for God's business at great risk. Lying to the messengers of the king, sending them on a wild goose chase, if she gets caught, she is done. Like, done. And this section ends with a definitive period. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Slam shut. I can just see it in the movie, can't you? Bam! The spies are now trapped in Rahab's house. Let's leave them there and go to the, the bottom piece of that. Uh, 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 now, I guess now we're here at the uh, mustard and relish um, barbecue sauce uh, level. Um, what happens there? More flavor, more drama. They do escape on a rope, probably a rope made with a flax she's woven through the window. And then the spies do something that put them at great risk. With Joshua and with God, they make a deal with this pagan woman, this prostitute, for her to escape too and become part of them when they defeat Jericho. They make a deal, a covenant, which creates tension and drama on a whole new level in the bigger part of the story because in making a covenant, that's clearly what it is, in making a covenant with the people of the land, they are very directly violating a command of God not to enter covenants with the people of the land. Twice in the book of Deuteronomy, which is what Moses has been teaching them in his latter days, twice in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, chapter 20, Moses clearly tells them, do not enter a covenant with the people of the land. It will compromise you. It will lead to divided loyalty. Do not enter a covenant with them and do not marry them. And so without consulting Joshua, these spies have made a covenant to spare this woman. So Rahab's at great risk, and now the spies are really at risk. So why did they save her? Well, it's because of what happened in the middle of the chapter. The meat of the sandwich. Anybody hungry yet? I know it looks like a hamburger. Hamburger is the Hebrew word for sandwich. If you're not a meatitarian, I'm sorry, yet just make it plant-based meat. It's a metaphor, okay? <laughs> in, a, in a chiastic structure, the center of the, uh, of the structure, the middle, the meat of the sandwich, is almost always the main point of the whole scene, which means that although it seems like a little dramatic game within a game, this is the real game. This structure is the author's way of saying that whatever you think about Joshua's decision to not move on the momentum he had, whatever you think his reason might have been in sending the spies, there is something going on here that is actually central to the story of the book and to the mission of the people of God in conquering the land.
The meat of this sandwich, the heart of the story, is a wonderful speech by Rahab. If Malcolm Gladwell was writing the book, the heading of this section would be, What the Prostitute Saw. And the subtitle would be, What the People of God Were Supposed to See. What the prostitute saw that was really why Joshua sensed God wanted him to send the spies, even though it may not have made strategic sense. What the prostitute saw that convinced the spies to violate the law of God. What the prostitute saw that actually frames the whole mission of God for the people of God. What the prostitute saw that gives us a lens through which to understand this whole idea of holy war. Let's read Rahab's speech again. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof, verse 8 of the chapter. She went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard. How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. What did Rahab see? Rahab saw God for who he really is. What Rahab puts together from the stories she's heard in her inn from the men traveling through and the men who came to her to release the tensions of their minds, Rahab has seen it all, has heard it all. And Rahab sees that there is more to the story of life than making money, than getting high and drunk, than having sex, and more even than nations fighting for turf and dominance. Rahab gets a vision, first of all, of the mighty power of God. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago. God's people have forgotten it a long time ago. That was yesterday's news. What is he doing for me today? But it was something that had spread from people to people, from Egypt all the way to Canaan. From the reports of many merchants and soldiers who had come through, their, through her and she's heard it from different enough angles that she knows it must be true, it must be real. For her, this isn't yesterday's news. For her, this is what God does. And she's heard that after a 40-year hiatus, this God is once again on the move. The end of verse 10, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two, kinds of, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. That just happened a few months ago. That just happened as the preseason preparation for conquering the land. She's heard the stories from men who came through and knows the perspectives of the people of her land. A great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. By the way, can, can you see how Rachel's faith is not just a leap in the dark kind of faith? Rachel's faith is based on, on evidence, knowledge, real-life data from which she draws some valid conclusions. Rahab has come to the conclusions that this is not a battle between peoples. This is a battle that's bigger than humans and is not led by humans. 
It is not one group of humans in the name of their God exerting themselves over another group of humans. But it's not just the might of God that Rahab sees. She sees beyond and above the might of God to, well, let's, let's call it the majesty of God. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, she knows the name of Israel's God, the covenant name for God. We know, or for the, she concludes that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. Do you realize what she's saying? What Rahab is saying is that she has concluded from what she's heard that the God of the Hebrews is the God above all gods that makes all other gods less than gods. They're idols. They're false gods. They're worthless. They're useless. Rahab in this statement is rejecting her own cultural narrative, as we say today. We all have one. We all have a way of looking at life and the world that's ultimately centered around the superior perspective of my culture or my generation, right? Rahab has heard it all, seen it all, been part of all the games, and she realizes that there has to be something bigger than any human God game. Rahab sees past the all religions are equal, all religions have some truth idea. She has come to the conclusion that there is a God above all cultural narratives who makes himself known with whom every single person will have to reckon. You see how powerful this is for the spies? Here's a pagan woman who believes what Israel is supposed to believe and rely on in moving forward, what they had failed to rely on 40 years ago that kept them from entering the land. So let's see how Rahab puts these two things together. What is her conclusion? The report which the spies bring back to Joshua almost verbatim. I know that the Lord has given you this land. She's concluded that if there's a God of the heavens above and the earth below, a God above all gods, well, as the psalmist says, she's concluded the same thing. The earth is the Lord's. It belongs to Him and everything and everyone in it. She realizes that although her people, any people like to think of this land as their land, none of it really belongs to humans. It all belongs to God, and He can do with it what He wishes. And she's heard more stories about this God than the stories from 40 years ago in Egypt. Rahab has heard that although the Canaanites might think or act like this is their land, she's heard that there was a man named Abraham whom God had promised this land 750 years earlier. These people have always known they are on borrowed time in this land. And so what do they do? They build their fortresses stronger, and they make their weapons mightier to desperately hold on to what they have. And Rahab sees that's just fool's business. What Rahab may or may not know was that there was a reason God did not give this land to Abraham and to Abraham's son Isaac or Isaac's son Jacob. 
a reason that these people had spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham he wouldn't get title to the land yet because, he says, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. From that, Rahab knows that this God is a God who is patient, who waits. Rahab has pieced all together from what she's heard over the years around her table and maybe in her bed as men have dumped their inner fears. And now we see why Rahab was willing to take the huge risk of getting executed for hiding spies and lying to leaders. She knows she's toast anyway. And Rahab decided that the only chance she had was that somehow, perhaps, if she acknowledged that her whole life has been based on a false narrative, if she acknowledged, put herself in the mercy of the one true God that was God, that was her best chance. You see, Rahab had concluded that if this mighty God was also a God of majesty, of overall gods, the one true God, who must be overall, he just might want to include all in his embrace. And she puts her trust in the one best chance, the mercy of this God. Now then, verse 12, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Kindness? Well, yeah. But this word is way more rich and big than just kindness. This word, some of you might recognize it, is the Hebrew word chesed. The loyal, faithful, rich, full, and complete restoring love of God. It is the key covenant word of God's relationship to his people. Rahab knows it. My hunch is that because of what Rahab says and because of something else the spies see, that we'll see later, these spies are reminded of their real mission. God's mission for them. You see, God's goal in holy war, his wars, is not to destroy everyone. His real desire is to rescue everyone possible from the kingdom of darkness. These spies are probably reminded of the promise God made to Abraham, their founding father, when he said he would give them this land. Why? Because through this land, through Abraham and his people in this land, all the people of the world will be blessed. Through Rahab, these spies grasped what Peter grasps more fully. After another three-day period many years later, when Jesus died, rose again, commissioned his church to his mission, and then nothing happened. Peter says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Just like with the Amorites and the people of the land, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Folks, the most important thing to remember in days when our culture seems to be working against God is that the way God calls us to respond is with confidence in Him and good news 
for people. He can fight his battles and he can fight our battles. But there's another thing Rahab's insight introduces us to right at the very beginning before these people enter the land. You see, the reality is that there is a war, a holy war, but it's not between nations. Nations are caught and people are caught in the middle of this war. We saw that several years ago in the book of Daniel. The reason we always feel like we're in the middle, it's because we are, but in a much different and more profound and more high stakes way than we realize. This material world, the one we can touch and see and smell is not the only world. Parallel to this material world is a cosmic reality, an immaterial world. And what is happening in the world we can touch and see is very much influenced, sometimes determined in more ways than we know by what's happening in that world. In that world, there are two forces, two personal entities, God and the evil one, not two equal and opposite forces. God is in control ultimately of all who are in control, both in the material world and the immaterial world. God will win. And in that immaterial realm, what is happening is a war. And the battles in that war influence and are often about what, has, what, what happens and what's happening in this world. A war, by the way, that started having impact on this world when humanity succumbed to the lie of the evil one that we could ruin our, could run our own life. And at that moment, we became under his control. Sometimes I hear people say when they bump up against a really tough situation, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion that this must be a spiritual battle. Well, the best answer to that is, well, yeah, you're probably right in a much bigger picture way than you realize because everything is part of a spiritual battle. There's always a spiritual reality behind every decision, every challenge, every reality. And when we feel discouraged and resentful about being caught in the middle, we have to be very careful not to make a person, a situation, the target. There's always something bigger going on. In one sense, you will never get out of the middle as long as you're in this world. We are in the middle of a big picture cosmic battle we can't see. No wonder I feel in the middle. We're in the middle of this fight which is not really about us, but it is a fight over us. It's a battle for our hearts, our loyalties, our minds. What we need to do is to learn how to live from the middle in light of the might and the majesty and the mercy of the God who is over all. When Jesus came out of the scene, he came as God's warrior. And people expected that from him, they would get a new government. But they expected his battle would be the battle that they saw in the material realm. But as he fights, what does he do? He heals people, not just physically. He forgives people. He takes on the effects we experience in this life of the fall. But all of that in the big picture was to show to the evil one that he had the power of evil in this world and every result of evil. He had the power over it. And his entire work in this world worked toward his final earthly battle. Fighting the evil we really need fought, not the evil out there, the evil in here, right here. In the final picture many people had of Jesus, the divine warrior, 
was not of a king with a sword in his hands, but of a slave with nails in his hands. Because he came not to bring the sword, but to bear the sword of God's judgment against me. He did not come into the material realm just to show us how to live in this battle. He came to win us into the side of the battle that we were created for, the side that, like Rahab knew, would win. Paul got that after fighting against Jesus until it got so frustrating for him, and he recognized and became a powerful leader for Jesus. And in Colossians chapter 1, he says that through the cross, he delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The next chapter, he said that through paying the price for forgiveness, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. Jesus did this for us, and he simply invites us to accept his verdict of our situation and his victory for us. Are you in? Are are, are you living as if you're in? Trusting each day in the might and the majesty and the mercy of the God who will win. In light of that, let me just look at one more thing I think the spies see in this house of the prostitute that remind them of the true mission they are drawn into as his people. It's the flax. The flax. What is it with the flax? What do you think the spies are thinking about as they're lying under that pile of flax? First of all, I'm thinking they're thinking, wow, what a coincidence. Who would have thought that on the roof of a roadhouse was a pile of flax? As they thought it through, they would have been impressed with Rahab's industriousness and ingenuity. And they may even have prayed silently, thank you, Lord, for leading us to this house and for providentially paying, having this pile here, right here at this time. As uh, Dr. J.I. Packer used to say, As luck would have it, providence was on their side. But as Rahab comes and gets them after she has covered up for them and sent away the king's messengers, and they come back down into her room, they see what they hadn't seen before, what what Rahab has done with some of this flax. She has pounded it down and woven it together into a rope, a a 30-foot rope in her house. As luck would have it, providence is on her side. A rope, a rope dyed scarlet. Scarlet, one ancient way people made dye, red dye, is that they would boil it out of, uh, boil the red out of a red rock. But since liquid dye was hard to transport and to store, they would, they would put a piece of rope into a vat of this dye, and the rope would absorb the dye. Cloth makers would then buy pieces of this rope and boil down the dyed rope together with their cloth in a huge container, and the dye would transfer from the rope to the fabric. Usually a small piece of rope, about six to eight inches, would dye a huge piece of cloth. Rahab's got 30 feet of rope. She is really an industrious and illustrious businesswoman. But as Rahab is talking about the God who brought them out of Egypt, he's... Is the spy remembering that God let them escape Egypt because of the painting? 
of a red blood on the doorpost. And so when the angel of death came by, he would pass over. Were they remembering that? A rope, a scarlet rope. Was it not a scarlet thread that another woman in their own story, a woman named Tamar, who dressed up like a prostitute, wrapped around the wrist of one of her twin boys to identify him as he is born? My hunch is that it's the spy whom we'll later discover is named Salmon that puts together this bigger picture. Because as we learn later, Salmon is the one who violates God's command in another way. Salmon, one of the spies, marries Rahab, bringing her fully into God's people. And Salmon and Rahab have a son named Boaz, who also marries an outsider named Ruth. Do you know what the key word in the book of Ruth is? Chesed. The faithfulness of a God who is mighty, majestic, and merciful. And Ruth's great-grandson, who is Rahab's great-great-grandson is King David, which means that Tamar, the prostitute, Rahab, the prostitute, and Ruth, all outsiders, are part of the lineage of the one who came to draw everyone who is outside the love and mercy of God into the life and love of God by another rope of red hung down from God for us to hang on to. So that when everything comes down and breaks down, and it will, He will rescue you. You may be at the end of your rope, but the rope died with the blood of Jesus reaches you. Have you grabbed it? Are you hanging on to it alone as your life, your full life, your free life, your rich and ever-flowing life, regardless of what's tearing at your heart and ripping you apart? Rahab's story and ultimately Rahab's descendant, Jesus, show us that anyone, no matter how far life has pushed us down or how deep life has pulled us down, no one is outside of God's redeeming love. No matter how moral I think I am, I am not inside God's redeeming love apart from the hanging rope of the love of Jesus' holy love. And nobody, no matter how immoral or down we think we are, is beyond the reach of the rope of God's redeeming love. He has won the battle. It is no longer has to be a tug of war with me in the middle. If you let God win, you win. Rahab is the only one among the people of Jericho who realizes that there is only one way she is absolutely sure to lose, and that is to not give in to the God who is mighty, the one who is majestic, the one who just might be as merciful as he is mighty and majestic. We're going to celebrate today the redeeming rope of Jesus. And if you are in, or if you want to say, I want to be in like Rachel, we invite you to just come forward. Worship team, why don't you come on up? And uh, as, as we 
play this song. Just come forward. We're going we're gonna to ask if, if you want to come and participate, leave, leave to your left. Where's your left? Leave left and come back right, okay? Just so we can make a circle. Just come and pick these elements up. Servers, why don't you come forward? Um, leave left, return right, and just hang on to them and meditate and reflect until we can all share them together. Can you just reflect on the question? Am I really working with the God who is at work with me, for me, in me? What do I need to do to release myself into his mercy? And in doing that, live in his might and his majesty.